0: Father in heaven, this morning, once again, we want to just pray that you would help us to, to understand and, s- and have the vision that you have for us, that we might not only benefit and be blessed by it ourselves, but we, we, we might be able to bless others with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we got to finish up just, just a little bit on this before we can get into the particulars of it. The model, the model that I follow is called the Albrecht model. Now I put the Albrecht TEC model on there because um, what what Sean had asked about a little bit ago we're going to have to address. Um, <clears throat> Dr. William Albrecht lived uh, well he died in uh, 1976 was it 1970s? Um, but he he worked at the University of Missouri for about uh, in re- soils for about 40 50 years. He was actually a soil microbiologist. Um, but he, uh, uh, I'll have to shorten a version of the history of this, but he began to wonder why some, because of some of his reading and everything and some of his, uh, his, his research, why some ground would grow healthier crops than other ground would grow. Why some animals on pasture would be healthier than other animals on other pasture. What was the difference? And so his life work was really um, Involved in answering answering that question, and I believe that he answered that question He was a man who said go to nature and learn from nature not from books and and He was sincere about that and and not that he was gonna He was gonna decide what nature was saying, but let nature say what it had to say And so uh, he did a lot of research um, on trying to figure out what actually produced health and fruitfulness because the, and remember that's the admonition from the very beginning in Genesis be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so that was his what how could we nourish the animals and ourselves and of course it was a big issue this was back in the 20s and the 30s in the 40s and the 50s so this has been understood for a long time folks it's not one of those things that's it's just a recent phenomena it's just it's been heavily heavily suppressed Sorry. um can I answer that question after the class I'll answer, I'll answer just come up and ask me that she was just asking what books could we read about it, um, it, it there there are some and I'll, and I'll share some of that I'll bring some of those books that I think are useful useful books there's there's certainly others the challenge is that that um, you always and almost all of them you find some deviation from it, and we're going we're to have to look at some of those deviations as they affect this actual model. Um, so what he did is he tried, he did a lot of research at the University of Missouri, at their, at their research farm there, to find out what, what combination of minerals would provide for the por- proper porosity that would provide for, he was a, bi- he was a biologist. And so his ultimate goal was how could I get the biology to be fully functional. And he came to recognize that if he got the chemistry right and he got the physics right, that the biology would then be able to thrive. He also did research. He, he, would tra- he traveled around the world and he, and he examined, he, he sampled soils and analyzed soils that were growing these beautiful, places like, you've heard of the San Marzano tomato? Well, a lot of things are grown that are called the San Marzano tomato, but it's kind of like the Percheron. Well, it was originated from San, the San Marzano Valley in Italy. It was another one of those places with a highly fertile um, area. And so it grew. You don't know what a San Marzano tomato tastes like. It was referring not to a particular variety. It happened to be the plum-type tomato that they grew, but it happened to be because it, it was a tomato that was kind of like the Jersey tomato. I grew up northeast of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Jersey tomato was like God. Um, and everybody raved about the Jersey tomato, and it was a really good tomato and everything. Of course I 'm not sure how low our expectations are, but a lot of things can be good if your expectations are low enough. But no, it was a, re- it was a really good tomato. But, um, but the, the, uh, the San Marzano tomato referred to the San Marzano Valley, a tomato from the San Marzano Valley. So anyway, he, he traveled around and he looked at a, he, he analyzed a lot of these places, and they kept coming back very similar. The chemistry kept coming back very similar. The structuring of the soil kept coming back very similar. And it wasn't related to texture. And what do I mean by texture? I mean how much sand, silt, and clay are in the soil. It wasn't based on the texture. It was based on the chemistry and the physics that were that existed in that soil. Because, look, folks, some of us are clay. we got a lot more clay than we have sand. Some of us have a lot more sand than we have clay. And uh, some of us have a combination of the sand, silt, and clay. That's the... That's the textural components of the soil, but it's not the structure of the soil. And um, so he decided, you know, and, and we're going to get into what he, what the conclusions he came to. Um, he decided, well, humus is the most stable form of, of everything that was once living. And so he decided, and he said, that ought to come, that ought to measure similar. If it's the right model, it ought to measure similar to that as well. And when he analyzed it, it did. It came out to almost the same chemistry, the same um, proportions of chemistry. And so then you put it to the test and you see, if you apply this print, these print, that chemistry, will the soil develop the right structure and other, so, so it can breathe. When I say structure, I mean, is it properly constructed? And we're gonna see how that's done. We talked about tillage, and I don't know if you saw that screen up there, the calcium, magnesium, and tillage, we're gonna talk about it. You know, how that allowing, getting that soil to breathe can be achieved in two different ways. In um, one way, eventually leads to a hardening of the soil if there's never any change in the chemistry or the character of that soil. It will ultimately lead to the hardening of that soil and the collapsing and the destruction of that soil. Um, so the, the real question was to put it to the test would it confer health would it confer immunity would it confer fruit bearing fecundity is the word he would use that's just a um a a word that's not used a whole lot in in everyday english anymore but it just meant the ability to bear fruit the ability to reproduce and so he put it to the test and and he he came to the modeling that he came to and it's consistent with the biblical requirements for pro- providing life, an abundant life, and the bearing of fruit, fruitfulness. Um, and so then he started, to, just to make sure it was correct, he started taking and deviating from it. And remember, I was telling you earlier that he, he's the one, he could take uh, rabbits, dogs, different animals, he could take them within two or three weeks, he could make them infertile. And he could take those same animals. And make them fertile again in a few weeks, back to to where they were. He would breed animals, and you know what they do? They get bigger. The same, the same, supposed species. Of, uh, there's pictures of this. They're rabbits. They kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when he reversed it, they got smaller with each generation, smaller and smaller and smaller. Um. So he put it through all the ringer, and. Uh, to, to test it from every angle that he could, because that were his criteria—the same criteria that we establish from the Bible—is the what a soil should be able to do, and it should be applicable anywhere. If it's true science, it should be able to be applied anywhere, not just under specific conditions or specific circumstances. Now, remember, we're going to talk about environmental influences. That's the other part of a growing system, and so that's the external influences on the, on the social system. It's like just like the external influences on us in the culture. We have influences that are, you know, pressed upon us all the time. And the real question is, how do we deal with them? Because sometimes you can't stop things from, from happening. The key is buffering. The key is the ability to, ad- to move things in a way that there's enough reserves, that there's buffering there that can offset the stress is being put on the system that are trying to destabilize it and unbalance it, and we have the problems we have today. The whole, the whole climate change and environmental thing has been hammered, but there's not real understanding of it. People put it because it's a pol- more of a political thing. Yes, the Earth is is falling apart, but we're not applying the right reasons to why it's falling apart. Like people, the, the environmental. And I'm not being critical of people like that, saying they're bad people or anything like that, but they'll come up to me and and we get in a conversation and they'll talk about the carbon in the air and and how bad all that is. I said, well, why? Plants love carbon. Why are they not? Greenhouses, hydroponic greenhouses, inject carbon dioxide into the air to get increased growth. Why, Why is the vegetation on the earth not going crazy, sequestering all of that carbon? It's a mineralization problem. It's a character problem, not, not a um, a manifestation problem. It's not a symptom. It's a cause. That, it's a cause. It's a problem. Um, but they don't like me saying that, so I won't say any more about it. Um, we have to. We have to. Um, so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the modeling. We're going to look at what it's what creates those conditions. But we probably have to do some terms here, and I meant to have, I apologize, this is the other presentation where I had some, some um, stuff to show, and it didn't wind up, didn't wind up getting put on here. Um, we need to understand a few things. What I'm going to share here is, is I'm going to tell you how the soil works. It's not fantasy. It's not speculation. It's how the soil actually works. If you don't know how it works, you're not going to know how to work with it. Um, We have terms up here, total exchange capacity and cation exchange capacity. Well, what is that? In the soil, you have what are called colloids. Colloids are simply particles in the soil that have a charge to them. That's all it means. And so you have clay colloids, and they have a charge to them. It's It's a net negative charge to them. You have humus colloids. Humus materials that are broken down into a stable form, they now take on a charge, so they're a colloid. The root hairs in the soil are a colloid because they have charge on them. So that's all it means. And so when we, and that's what we're going to be talking about when we're talking about total exchange capacity and cation exchange capacity, What 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 is this capacity we're talking about? It's the capacity, the charge in that soil. How much charge that soil actually has. In other words, I, I meant to bring them and I forgot to bring them. How big of a bucket? What is the capacity of that soil in charge, in, in means of charge, that it can actually hold something? How big of a bucket does it have? Because what happens if, and you need to know that, what happens if you, you have a five-gallon bucket full of something and you pour it into a 2 gallon bucket. What's going to happen? It's too much. What if you have a 5 gallon bucket and you have a 2 gallon bucket full of water and you pour it into the 5 gallon bucket. Is it full? No. It's not full. And so this is a matter of knowing how big is the bucket. And when it says exchange capacity, it's where it says cation, we're going to we're going to talk about the difference between total and exchange capacity and cation exchange capacity. Cations are elements in the soil that have a positive charge. Electrically they have a po- net positive charge. And these colloids have a net negative charge, and so they're attracted to each other. You guys learned this in your physics, right? That like charges repel and and opposite charges attract and everything. So they they the cation elements, which we're going to look at, I don't want to get too complicated with this cuz you know, I don't want to lose you. But cation elements their calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, those are positively charged elements. They are held on these colloids in the soil, whether they're clay colloids or humus colloids, they can actually be attracted to the root hairs as well um, if they're in solution. And this is the, the dynamics of the way this works is how the plant gets what it wants in the soil. So cation exchange capacity is just saying how big the bucket is, how, how many cations how many charges are in that soil and therefore how many cations can be held on those charges so do I have hundred charges I'm just throwing numbers out here to try to do I have hundred charges charge sites that can attract hundred um, positively charged cations or do I have a thousand because it's gonna make a big difference on what you have to do to address the needs of that soil we're like that ourselves we all have different capacities God doesn't, uh, I'll I'll share the story, but God doesn't expect us. Remember the parable of the talents? We have different capacities, and God does not expect us, if our bucket is a five-coin bucket, and we don't fill it all the way up, then we're not not, um, giving our full capacity to life. If we're a two-coin bucket, he doesn't expect us to be a a five-coin bucket but he expects us to increase, and this can increase. And the key is, it'll come back to that humus and the organic matter, and hopefully you'll figure out that I'm not an enemy of organic matter. Um, it comes back, the key is the, is the humus content. Humus is 30 to 35, has 30 to 35 times more exchange sites than the clay colloids in the soil do. So if you build the humus levels in the soil, you build capacity. There's another issue with the clay part of it and it's, remember when I was sharing, t- talking to you about um, how we can drive yield at the expense of future yield? Well, one of the things that happens is by using certain chemistry, these, these clay plates, and I don't have diagrams, I figured that was going to be too much. But drawings of it, there are 2-1, what they call 2-1 clays, expandable clays, and there are um, single-layer clays. These two-one clays, and I'll show you the capacity difference. And by destroying these two-one clays, which is what this chemistry does, in order to kick off the nutrients and make them available to get the yield, but in, but your future capacity to produce has just been reduced. But what happens is when you've got a when you've got those two-one what they're called as two-one clays, and they may have a bucket that's 80 to 100 gallons. And when that, when that structure is destroyed, it drops it to 20 or at best 40. Sometimes it drops it down to 10. So you can actually, you can actually reconstruct some of those clays. It's a hard process to do and it takes time to do it, but you can actually start reconstructing some of those clays to back to what they were, again, to increase capacity. It's not done very often because there are very few people even working with this kind of modeling and going, to, I found, even the people that are working with this kind of modeling, they're content just to be okay. Just to get the crop. They're just, they just they can eliminate some of their problems. And then there's people out there, they're going to do everything that they can to improve their system to its fullest capacity. And there's not a whole lot of people doing that, but it can be done. Yeah. You're going to really, well, it's actually, when, when you get down to... your soil uh, your soil texture components, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a aluminum, uh, aluminosilicate crystalline structure. Clay is not actually a smaller rock fragment. It's been reorganized into a crystalline structure. And the backbone is aluminum and silicon. And we're going to talk about, hopefully, eventually, silicon. It's not one of those things that's even paid attention to. It's It's one of the most abundant elements on the earth. And it's just assumed that it's it's fine. It's one of the keys to reconstructing clays, because what happens is silicon gets knocked off, and aluminum takes its place. And and uh, but that's not how it collapses. It collapses. It, well, it is. It's actually you destroy the the crystalline structure. You actually alter it, and it loses its capacity. It can. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that it's done, but yeah. See that as a, yeah but it gets yield. Yeah, instant, it not, causes not tremendous pollution. Right. It tra- causes tremendous damage to the biology. Right, right. Uh, and and, uh, but, but it gets yield and it gets it cheap. Or different types of clay. You'll get, you've heard of montmorillonite. Montmorillonite is one of those two-one clays. It's incredibly healing because it, it does charges on it, attract a lot of toxins and lock them up. And bentonite and, get, clay. and bentonite clay. Right. Um, and so, but that's, those same things, the same things they do when people use them for a cleansing intervention is, um, that's how they do it, is because they have that charge. And, and like I said, you can destroy that, that, that structuring and collapse it, and now you've lost a huge percentage of your capacity to, to hold fertility, to be productive, to be productive with. Um. And so, again, that's what I was saying earlier, that, that um, we can get yield at the expense of future yield. And we're, we're doing a number with that one. Okay, so, so a cation is a positively charged element. The predominant ones are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium that are held on these, these colloidal clays and colloidal humus. Um, so what is total exchange capacity compared to cation exchange capacity? Well, one of the things we have to address here is that whenever whenever somebody discovers something that's true and it gets out there and it starts working, the devil heads it off as fast as he can, as many ways as he can. And one of those ways is to alter the way these things are measured. What I'm exp- cation exchange is the modeling that's used, is is how the soil works, okay? It's not made up by Dr. Albrecht, it's not made up by me. Most soil research is done using cation exchange, the cation exchange basis. They have to because that's the way it works. But they don't ever tell the farmer that. They don't ever tell the farmer how their soil actually works. You'd be surprised how many farmers don't know how their soil works. They just apply an approach to it and they don't really understand um, what they're actually doing. So, in order to be more expedient or faster, in order to be cheaper, the methodology has been altered. In other words, the the, the, the way the modeling was set up to be analyzed and it it was set up to be measurable to the field and otherwise the conditions in the field would be represented by the analysis and as a result if you made applications based on that information it would be measurable to the field you should see it show up in the field this is the way that the analytics were developed over decades not just a couple of months and so what's happened is you know, we always want to do things faster, we always want to do them cheaper, we're impatient people. You know, we you know, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, you have you you've had labs that are not incompetent. Don't anybody go out and say I said they were they were incompetent. The labs are not incompetent. They know what they're doing. But they're using different methodology so that they can make it cheaper and faster. So what have they done? They've taken and instead of using specific extractants and spe- specific protocols they're going to a universal extractant well when you go to the universal extractant it changes the numbers and really to get to the point where the numbers really don't mean a lot spe- especially on certain ones of the the mineral elements they just don't have a lot of meaning because they're not correlatable to the field now if a person could take the way those analytics were done and work with them long enough to figure out how to what they mean they may be able to come to the same process of of restoring but it always always comes back to the measure of are you achieving the objectives and I can stand here and tell you that there are very few people that that don't follow the actual process that Dr. Albrecht developed they're not achieving um, disease-free, pest-free, reduced weed pressure or eliminated weed pressure conditions they're not and then what comes around is they make excuses for that. Oh well, a soil test is just a snapshot in time is one I've heard. You know, and things are always changing and so you're really not, you're just getting a snapshot, you're not really getting the whole dynamic of what's going on. Um, this, it, it's not really that important. You start to make excuses for the failure, rather than looking at the failure and say is, is the way I'm looking at this incorrect? And so once again, the labs are not incompetent. The technicians that work there are not incompetent. They know it, they're very competent at what they do. They've changed the process. Another thing that they've changed is sometimes they'll run a salt pH. Sometimes they'll run a water pH. A salt pH is as much as a point different than a water pH. If you, if you calculate your exchange capacity, based on I know we haven't talked about pH or any of that yet, well, hopefully we'll get it, it will alter the numbers significantly enough that you will not hit the target. You will not hit it unless you take that into consideration because it changes the way you measure that. And so I have to tell you, if somebody has solar reports in here and they're from another lab, please don't bring them up to me and ask me to tell you what they mean. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. I can't, I can't competently tell you what they mean because I don't know how, they were, how the analytics were done. If somebody knows what they mean and can apply them and achieve those results, well, then they're as good as the numbers that, that Albrecht developed. But I haven't found very many people that are able to do that. And it's, it, it, it's, they usually find another reason why they're going to continue to do it the way it is. And a lot of times the consultants will wind up, the labs are selling soil tests. And I'll, I'll show you the difference between a lab that comp- is accurately doing it the correct way they can run about 350 samples a day. The labs that are doing it the convenient way, the easy, fast way, they're running a couple thousand a day. You have to, with, with highly sensitive uh, machines like that, you have to calibrate them multiple times during the day. There are little things you have to pay attention to to make sure that they're accurate. When you're running that fast and turning all this stuff and everything like that, you think they're that concerned about, if they were concerned about accuracy, they never would have t- changed their methodology in the first place. But the key is, if the information is not right, then the, the, the understanding of it and the, and the conclusions, the, the actions you choose to take as a result of it will not achieve the results. This is what we don't understand about life, folks. And I'm afraid the church has is, is, is really suffered as a result of this. The model will always have its way. The model will always have its way. And if the model's not right, you can sandwich it with religion and whatever else you want to re- sandwich it. will have its way. And we, we wonder sometimes why a lot of things that we're trying to uh, advance as a church are not advancing. And again, I, I'm not being critical of people. I just think we need to start, we need to start asking some questions. I, I promise you, the model will always have its way. Always. And if you, if you don't understand what what its objective is, what that model's objective is, um, y- you may be getting yourself somewhere you never intended to be. Or you may not be getting to where you wanted to go. So um, so that that brings me to the total exchange capacity thing. The difference is, is in the total exchange capacity approach, all of the key major cations are measured. And, these, uh, and, and what they call cation exchange um, analytics, they just call cation exchange, they may do... Total exchange, but most of them do not. they leave out sodium and they they may do a water pH or a salt pH instead of a water pH that changes the hydrogen amount of hydrogen, which is also a positively charged cation um, and so it changes it changes the numbers and so the capacity how big you are determining the bucket is is not right you think you have. A two and a half gallon bucket, and you only have a two gallon bucket, and so you think you need to put on stuff to, to fill a two ga- two and a half gallon bucket, and it's only two. Well, that may not sound well. What's the big deal with all of that? The last few percentages, the last few steps to coming into harmony with the correct correct modeling will produce exponential changes. And so, if you're off by a little bit, it's, it's it can be a lot there's there's a lot of there's a lot of methodologies out there and we could spend hours just going through all of the all of the different ways that the analytics are done but the 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 analytics that have demonstrated themselves in the field to be correspondent to the field are Albrecht's total exchange capacity analytics now like I said if you if you don't measure everything that's going into the bucket how can you know how big the bucket is you can't know how big the bucket is. And then all your, all your applications as a result of a different size bucket are going to be off. And so you have to, you have to measure everything that's going into the bucket accurately. If you don't measure everything going into the bucket, you don't know how big a bucket it is to determine, to determine the size. Now of all that, so now you've got a big bucket. Say you have a five gallon bucket. You know what the capacity of that soil is hold these nutrients now we're not we're not talking about all the nutrients here yet there's anions the negative charges nitrogen phosphorus sulfur we're going to talk about those after this but this is a key part of it because this part of it is what allows the soil to breathe and then everything else works because of this um, so the next thing we need to look at is now we know how big of a bucket we have we have how much Charge capacity there is to hold these cations, these positively charged cations. We have to look at the percentage of the bucket that's filled with them. Now this, this term is a term that they use called base saturation percent. And, and all it's saying is how much of the bucket is filled, it's saying how much of that capacity is saturated with a certain cation element. How much of it's calcium, how much of it's magnesium, how much of it's potassium, how much of it is sodium. That's what saturation means. Is how much of the bucket. If you have a five-gallon bucket, how much of it is filled with calcium? How much of it's filled with magnesium, potassium, sodium? Okay. That's that's what this is. It's a misnomer because it says base saturation percent. Well, they're not all base means it's an alkaline-forming, as opposed to an acid-forming element. So its reactions will produce alkalinity, and that's base. That's what base means. It'll be a base reaction. It'll produce alkalinity as opposed to acidity. Well, there are two other cations that are actually acid-forming, hydrogen and aluminum, that are part of this process. And so it's a misnomer because it says base. It should just say saturation, you know, cation saturation percentage instead of base saturation because they're not all alkaline forming. Those two are are acid-forming in it. But it's really all, is it saying, all is it, that is is how much of the bucket is filled with each of those elements. What percentage, if, if five gallons is 100%, well, is how much of that percent of the bucket is filled with each of those things? That's all that is. But there's this very specific amount of the bucket that should be filled with each one of those in order to achieve, um, achieve the, the porosity in the soil. Stru- the proper structuring of the soil right and so the question was asked about kind of if I grow something in a pot well you would need to analyze the material you're using in the pot and figure out what it needs in order to balance it you can do that it's done all the time actually by some greenhouse growing operations not the majority of them there's just a few that do it but they do that's what they do they grow stuff in pots and and they just balance it out the best they can in the pot the problem is that you're not going to grow in that way forever you're not going to build a durable system that way but that's not their concern and so they but they want healthy plants they want productive plants and so they're utilizing that so uh, do I have everybody with me so far okay Were we kind of um, I put down their coal i already explained that one should have had it up on the top uh, it's just a, 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 a something with a charge on it it has a charge our cells have a charge on them, you know, in your body. They have all have negative charges on them. If they didn't all have negative charges, they all just collapse into each other. You know how you get sick? When a positive, some positively charged stuff it usually winds up being toxins, gets in between the cells, collapses them into each other, air can't go through, nutrient waste can't move out, nutrients can't move in, and the next thing you're sick, and it depends on what part of your body it's in, is what they call it, and, and how severe that, how severe that uh, materializes. You've got to open it up. It's got to be able to move air. It's got to be able to, it's got to, be able to breathe and exchange in the air. And the waste products go out, and the nutrients come in. And so you have to have that same condition. You'll find that this modeling, it, it, in all aspects of life, the same modeling applies because it's, it's, it's God. <laughs> it's his modeling. It's, it's his character. that when it, And when it works correctly, it brings life. And when it's not working correctly, it brings sickness and disease and dysfunction. Um, Okay, so, now we need to look at, okay, what's got to be in the bucket? In order to, what's got to be in the bucket in order to achieve this? I had a sheet and I, I I apologize that it's not up there because I wanted to show you, different bucket sizes may require different adjustments in the quant, the contents. And we're going to look at that a little bit as we go along here. But hopefully I've cleared, cleared it up so, because, people invariably bring me soil tests up and I have uh, I recognize the lab but I could I could tell you like we're gonna look at here and the ideal level and I'll do that while I'm talking I'm gonna just take this one down and put the other one up Um, the ideal level in general for most soils is that bucket needs to have 68 percent saturation of calcium 68 percent of those charge sites need to be covered with calcium And 12% needs to be with magnesium. Now, after I told you that, I'm going to throw a curve to you and say about 60 to 70%. You know, if you were to read Dr. Albrecht's work, he would say 65. But on most soils, 68 is the target you're going to be shooting for. And I'll, we'll explain why that is. But his range was 60 to 70% saturation of calcium and 10 to 20% saturation of magnesium. So there was a range and as we go along you'll see why there's a range. The reason I brought those two up first is because calcium and magnesium, we're going to look at the roles of these two but I want to do this before we we, we go into it. Calcium and magnesium determine the structure of the soil. You can open the soil with tillage, but I think that if you continue with tillage, the, the assumption is made that iron is what is required to till the soil. Why can't you till the soil with tiller radishes, with alfalfa roots? The, the idea is to get the soil open so air can get down, down into it and everything. So the plow often, plow deep principle is correct because the objective is to get air to allow that soil to breathe, to have adequate porosity and air exchange. But it doesn't have to be achieved by iron. You don't have to pull a plow behind a tractor to achieve that. You know, you may have to initially to break up that ground until you get the conditions so that it'll stay that way. When you, get the, when you get the chemistry right, you can drive tractors over that field and it'll act like a sponge. It won't come back right away, but within a, within a period of time, all of, that, all of those, that soil will sponge back out because of the chemistry. It won't stay compacted. And it's important, uh, important to understand that. When you, when you use a plow, you'll eventually, with time, produce a layer that's hard, compaction layer. You can do it with a rototiller. You can do it with a rotary spading machine. You can even do it with a regular spading machine. You're hitting the same depth all the time. And with sedimentation and everything, you can, pl- you can create a layer of hardness And uh, I wish I was unable to get permission to use the pictures, and I've shared this before. Um, In 2012, some of you have heard this, in 2012 there was a grower in Illinois. You know we had that really bad drought, and everything was dying in the Midwest? Well, there was a grower who had 10-foot-tall silage corn, green from the top to the bottom, hadn't rained in weeks, and at the base of every one of those plants was a wet spot, Hadn't rained in weeks, but a wet spot. They took photographs of it, a wet spot, about a foot in diameter. How did it get there? And why was it there? Well, the plant knew that the biology, when the soil dries out, the biology is not going to work anymore. And it wants—it depends on that biology to, to, to work with it to be productive. And so the, the plants themselves were pulling water from deep in the soil. And I'll tell you how they were, you know they dug them up to see but it was pulling water from deep in the soil, bringing it up and moistening around the base of the plant so the biology could keep doing its thing. And everything around it, all the fields around it were brown and dying. And here this guy's field is green. He had his highest yield that year that he had ever had in these stressed conditions. In these stressed conditions. They dug, they took a backhoe and they dug a trench to see how deep the roots were going. And a lot of people don't understand this, but in the Midwest, where they grow all that corn, and soybeans and everything, they're growing in a planter box. And you're probably thinking, what? What do you mean, planter box? They've got compaction six inches down. When that dries out and hardens, the roots can't get through it. They can't get the moisture. And so their depth of soil, you remember hearing that in the parable of the sower? Their depth of soil wasn't very deep. And so when the, when the scorching sun came, what happened? It withered up and dried out died uh, most people don't realize that but it's uh, they dug a trench on this man's farm now he'd been at this for a while he had been applying the right principles to restoring the right construction of the soil and his roots were they dug six feet down they hadn't found the bottom of them yet there was depth of root he it, it was down deep into that earth he had created the conditions so that those roots could go deep and in times of stress it was able to buffer the the stresses that were being imposed on on the plant. Brought the water up from down deep, moistened the soil, the biology kept doing its thing, and he got his highest yield he'd ever had when everybody else is dying, burning up and dying. There's a lesson in that because the day is coming and I think we're not too far from it right now. Um, I, I'll share another illustration before we, we move into this. It's my own, my own high tunnel. We're, we just bought this place a couple of years ago. We're really trying to get re- properly reconstructed, the soil reconstructed and everything. I planted some tomatoes in this high tunnel and they looked beautiful until the rains came and the clouds covered the sun and they, there wasn't adequate photosynthesis and they, they were already eight feet tall, covered with trusses of fruit and early blight hit. I'll elaborate on this when we do the, the plant, the pests and the diseases and the weeds. But early blight hit. Er, early blight is a potassium deficiency. But what happened was, the plant was trying, when you grow an indeterminate plant, God wants us to be indeterminate. He doesn't want us to cut off fruitfulness. He wants us to live forever and to, be, and to bear fruit. But what happened is, the plant is both trying to maintain the frame, the vegetative part of the plant, and reproduce and there's not enough resources to do both. And so what the plant does is it's, its intention is to bear fruit, and so it starts pulling all of the resources out of the plant to bear, to produce the fruit. And when that happens, um, you, you wind up with deficiencies in the leaves, you wind up with the signals of senescence or dying, and what the behavior of the Alternaria, which is the causal a- agent in that particular case, Uh, begins eating the leaf and destroying it. It's a potassium deficiency from stress. There wasn't enough. It's called hidden hunger and I believe folks we're in that boat where we feel we're doing a whole lot better than we really are but when the stresses come, when when a crisis comes, I hope it's not going to happen to a lot of us but I'm afraid it might happen hopefully with enough time for us to recognize and get ourselves better nourished but they're going to look like my tomato plants did. They look terrible. You know the interesting thing? You know I know how, that's why it is because there wasn't quite enough there. It was hidden hunger. There wasn't. It wasn't fully nourished. It wasn't fully functional. When the cri- when the stresses went away, they greened up on the top and they started. They hadn't died yet. They looked like they were about dead, but they hadn't died yet. They greened up and they started growing. They started looking beautiful again. Um, There's a lot of other lessons in that too, but um, we need oil in the lamp. That's what that parable is about. We need oil in the lamp because there's going to become a time when you can't buy or sell. You can't do the things, put the inputs. There's a famine in the land for the word of God. It's not just, you know, soil amendments to put on your soil, but it's it's the nourishment that we need spiritually we're not going to have. Have we put oil in the lamp? Is our lives stored up that, that... so that we can endure in a a situation where the stresses are are extreme and we need to be able to. Okay, so it's calcium and magnesium that determine the structure of the soil. So let's just go through it because I have a couple of drawings. They're uh, rudimentary drawings, but um, let's start going through this a little bit and we'll get to that. Calcium and magnesium are more, a lot of people look at them as just pH adjusters. pH is just a measure of hydrogen, how much hydrogen, how many hydrogen ions there are in the soil, or the, how much acidity there is. It doesn't tell you what what's, it took the place of. It took the place of something. So it, conventional wisdom is you just adjust the pH back, because it affects the availability of other nutrients. And so you just adjust the pH back. And it doesn't really matter what liming agent, they've called it a liming agent. There are some calcium and magnesium sources that are not liming agents. The only reason is because they don't produce uh, calcium carbonate. <laughs> and so they don't, they don't change, they don't neutralize some of the, they, the hydrogen. But they're also nutrients, they're not just pH adjusters, they're nutrients. And so pH is not just telling you where the acidity level is. It's telling you that you're missing nutrients. Now the real question is, which ones are you missing? The pH doesn't tell you anything about that. It only tells you you're missing them. And so you've got to have some other measure, means of measuring what's missing. Okay. so here are the roles of calcium. We'll just go through these real quick, and then we'll look at how how it works with uh, structuring the soil. Calcium is, is vital in cell wall construction, <coughs> cell division, cell membrane function, and material transfer in and out of the cells. Everything goes into the plant on the back of calcium. Everything. Calcium facilitates the uptake of everything else. There are other nutrient elements that can facilitate some of those things getting in, but it creates a different dynamic than calcium. Dominant. Soil structure it's, it's in, has, plays a role in soil structuring. And it's an immobile element. In other words, when it gets into the plant, it's built into things, and, it, and it's there. It's not mobile. It's not going to be pulled back out and moved into plant. This is important when we look at the de- when we look at the uh, deficiencies, symptoms, and everything. Where you'll see the symptoms of deficiency when you have a calcium deficiency. Okay. Does everybody have everything off that you want? I can't go into a lot of detail on each of these different aspects because we never we, we never make it through the. That's why i was saying it's like a five-day thing instead of. <laughs> okay, here's here's some of the deficiency and excess symptoms. In a deficiency, the terminal buds die. That's the growing tip. The growing tip will die. Young leaves will kind of take get a hooked appearance to them. Can blossom and rot on fruit now that can be a deficiency of calcium but not necessarily in the soil because if you don't have enough moisture in the soil calcium won't move in the soil and so you can get blossom end rot just simply because the soil is too dry uh, you will also see that that can also happen because calcium is kept mobile by boron we're gonna look at boron but calcium is kept mobile by boron if there's not enough boron calcium is not mobile enough you can also get the same problem it's an interdependent system there's not independent okay there's not uh, it's not independent of things are not independent of each other excesses um, the biggest problem with an excess of calcium in the system is it ties up the other nutrients it controls all of the other nutrients in the soil and so you're you usually get symptoms of other nutrient deficiencies because those those nutrients are being suppressed or tied up and so they're not they're not sufficient at not sufficient for the crop to grow right so you'll see symptoms otherwise okay um, our time is up so we'll have to stop there this media was brought to you by audioverse a website dedicated to spreading god's word through free sermon audio and much more if you would like to know more about audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www.audioverse.org